It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, June 7th, 2017, and you're about to embark on an audio joyride in the invisible jet that is God and Comics. On today's show, the new film Wonder Woman opened this past week to critical acclaim. We'll talk about the movie, and we'll talk in general about the longest-running female superhero in comics, the Amazon princess, none other than Diana of Themyscira. Plus, as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm at St. George's, Connected in New York. And if I sound like uh, I'm speaking from the bottom of a well today, it's because uh, due to some technical issues, I'm having to record this in the chapel of, uh, of my parish. Uh, so uh, that echo you hear is actually the, the echo of holiness, I think, bouncing off of the walls in here or something like that. Um, but uh, hopefully it won't be too distracting. Uh, as many of our listeners know, we are sponsored by the Living Church, which is a real privilege and something that uh, we're very proud to, uh, to say we're associated with. The Living Church is an independent, nonprofit ministry seeking and serving the church's unity, life, and vitality through journalism, publishing, organizing, and leadership development. Check out all their offerings and products at livingchurch.org. Org. Well, guys, uh, I'm real excited uh, to talk about Wonder Woman today, and there's a lot of stuff we're going to be getting into as we as we delve into that topic. But first, as always, we have our recommendation, and our recommendation this time out comes to you from none other than the one, the only, live from the Infant of Prague room. There he is, Father Matt Stromberg. Take it away. <laughs> well, um... This week, I'm really excited about my recommendation, um, and it is the new uh, relaunch of the Doom Patrol under the DC's Young Animal imprint. The author of this book is Gerard Way, who was the frontman for the band My Chemical Romance. Not not a band that I was really familiar with before. Um, I don't know if his music is any good. But his comic books are excellent. And the artist is Nick Darrington, another uh, artist that I was not familiar with. But uh, I really love the artwork in this book. So the, the Doom Patrol, they've had a cult following from their very beginning. And they actually go back uh, a number of, of years. They go back in, until the early 60s. I think it was 1963. They were a superhero team that had their beginnings in a book called My Greatest Adventure, which was sort of an adventure sci-fi fantasy book. And this was their uh, foray into the genre of superheroes. And they have some similarities to the X-Men. Uh, they began around the same time. Uh, they're, they're kind of outcasts, uh, strange superheroes. Both teams are led by a brilliant man in a wheelchair. In the case of the Doom Patrol, it's the chief, Niels Calder. But anyway, there, there's some debate of who copied who, or is it just a coincidence? They came out around the same time. But um, they, they were built as the strangest uh, superheroes in the world, and they are kind of uh, offbeat. The original team was consisted of uh, the chief, whom I already mentioned, uh, robot man who was a race car driver whose uh, brain was implanted into a robot body after uh, a horrible accident. Elastigirl, who was an actress who uh, was exposed to some strange gases in Africa and it could change the size of her body. And uh, the negative man, uh, who's probably the strangest character, he was a, a pilot whose whole body became irradiated so much that he had to wrap himself in bandages like a mummy uh, to keep people from being affected. And he could release a negative spirit from his body, but it could only be 
uh, separated from him for uh, a brief period of time or else he dies. <laughs> so that was the original Doom Patrol. It had a cult following but was canceled by DC after a number of issues, and they actually resolved the book by killing off the whole team, which was sort of a bold move for those days. Uh, but as, as you know in comic books, no one stays dead. And they were resurrected later. But they had a kind of difficult time finding their feet as a book. Um, they kind of were brought back as sort of a generic kind of superhero team, kind of a little too derivative of the X-Men, until they were taken over by Grant Morrison, who really did the definitive run of the book. And Morrison's run is just a stone-cold classic. It's so weird, so offbeat, so inventive and creative and just a, a delight to read. And after Morrison left, they kind of, you know, uh, again, kind of found a difficult, uh, uh, found difficulty finding their identity as a book. Until now, Gerard Way has taken the reins of the Doom Patrol, and it starts out just grippingly. It, it, it's a it's a wonderful book, and has all this the offbeat strangeness that we've come to expect from the Doom Patrol. But Gerard's take is very different than Morrison's. It, he introduces us to some new characters. Primarily, it, it, it's the main character of the book is a character named Casey Brink, who we're introduced to in the first episode. She is an EMT, and she, we're told she only wants to do good. She's sort of this uh, red-haired, freckled kind of girl-next-door idealist, and she's driving uh, an ambulance with her partner, Samson. They've only been together for uh, maybe a few weeks, but they're already a great team. So we, we're introduced to these new characters, and it just gets weirder from there. In fact, uh, the, when you pick up this book... It, you're going to have difficulty knowing what's going on because it's just completely unexpected. At one point, Samson is eating a gyro. A gyro is a delicious Greek uh, <laughs> Greek food. It's a pita and, and, and otherwise meat. known as a hero. A, a hero. That's right. yeah. A hero. Uh, that's the more accurate pronunciation, Jonathan. <laughs> gyro is probably the more well known. But. Um, <laughs> He, and, and, and Samson is waxing philosophical about this hero, about how there's just a, a whole universe inside this hero. And a fly lands on, on, on the thing, and, and we zoom in, and there is a universe in the gyro. And, and Robot Man is, like, uh, leading some sort of revolution. And he, when he tosses the gyro in the trash can, it explodes. And, and you know... It, it, and it just gets weirder, you know? And, and so you, there's a lot that happens in the first issue where you just, it keeps you off balance, keeps you asking questions. In fact, the, the, the graphic novel, uh, the trade paperback rather, just came out. And I think that's a good way to read it. When I was picking it up month to month, the first couple months I was like, what is happening? What is this book even about? So it gets stranger. We find out that Casey and Samson's ambulance is actually sentient. And it is the character that we know well from the past Doom Patrol, who used to be known as Danny the Street, who is a sentient street. Well, now Danny has evolved, and he's a whole universe located inside of the ambulance. <laughs> and... There is a, an evil, insidious intergalactic corporation called the Vectra that wants to uh, use Danny to produce cheap meat because within Danny's universe, he is populating it with creations of his own, people, animals, individuals, there's whole towns and, and everything that we get a tour uh, of inside the ambulance by uh, Flex Metallo, the man of muscle mystery. So the book is very intentionally built and, and layered. Stick with it. Don't be thrown off if, you're, if, if you don't know what's happening because it, it crystallizes as it goes on. 
Um, and, and it's a really entertaining read, one that I'm super excited about. And I'm anxious to find people that I could talk about this book with. It's, it's the kind of book where you go back and read the issues over again and you discover new things and new layers and, and little hidden things that, that uh, zipped by you the first time. So this is going to be a, a weird, wild ride. And I, I don't know, we're, we're six issues in, uh, and I think it may turn out to be every bit as great as Morrison's run. Um, it may be better. Who knows? Well, thank you for that recommendation, Father Matt. That sounds uh, bizarre and fun. We'll have to check that out. We're going to move into our main discussion, which is today about the new Wonder Woman film. And uh, before we get into talking about the film itself, we've never uh, done a full episode on Wonder Woman before. And so uh, we thought we might start with a little bit of uh, speaking of the history of, of Wonder Woman in comics. So Wonder Woman uh, is one of those uh, very early characters in, in what eventually became DC Comics. Uh, go, she goes all the way back to 1941 to All-Star Comics number 8. That's her first appearance. Uh, and then the next year, uh, Sensation Comics number 1. She was created by a man named William Moulton Marston, who had a whole set of bizarre ideas in mind <laughs> when he created her. Um, he was not somebody in comics. He was a, psych a psychiatrist, and it's kind of a strange story of how he gets connected into the whole thing, but basically he gets asked to come up with a character that can have some, some mass appeal uh, all, you know, based off of the success of, of Superman, uh, and Batman, and Marston says what you really need is a female character, and comes up with this whole mythos uh, with the creation of Wonder Woman that has some connection to Greek mythology, uh, but a lot of which just kind of comes out of Marston's own head. And Marston was an odd cat. I mean, he was, he was married to um, his wife Elizabeth, but they also had a, another woman who lived with them who was essentially a, um, a second wife. I mean, she wasn't actually married to him, but a second wife to Marston named Olive Byrne. And they had this whole kind of uh, polygamous lifestyle that was worked out. And in fact, Olive Byrne is credited with being some of the inspiration for Wonder Woman, for how she originally looked and some of the other things. Uh, and Marston was kind of obsessed with two things, one of which was uh, early feminism. He was very interested in early feminism. Now we're talking first wave, uh, you know, feminism. So this is, uh, I mean, you know, this is post the struggle for women to have the right to vote, uh, but still very much in the same kind of mode that goes all the way back to Susan B. Anthony and some of those sort of figures, uh, and was very much about the, the dignity of, of women, the strength of women, uh, and so forth. At the same time, though, he was also kind of obsessed with, uh, you know, this is a family program, so I have to be careful how I say this, but obsessed with certain fetishes and, and things like that. Um, and uh, so, you know, Wonder Woman, uh, this is part of how she gets this, you know, glorified swimsuit model look that she originally has. Uh, and Marston is obsessed with BDSM, uh, which is one of the reasons why in the early comics um, Wonder Woman would lose her powers anytime she was bond like put into chains by a man. <laughs> you know, and so there was all this sort of stuff going on in the background. So you have these two kinds of ideas of, of woman that are really uh, in contradiction with one another uh, that are kind of playing out for Marston. But he, he creates this whole idea of the Amazons, these women who had been removed from man's world, the corruption of man's world and society, and were creating this kind of perfect utopian society because there were only women there. And uh, they had been um, given this, this gift by the Greek gods, all women, uh, all basically immortal, Hippolyta being their queen, and Hippolyta prayed to have a daughter 
And that, that prayer was answered by the gods. She sculpts uh, a daughter, basically sculpts a child out of clay on the beach one day and prays to the gods to give them life. And uh, Aphrodite actually does answer this prayer and, and gives life uh, to this child who would eventually grow up to become Wonder Woman. Now, this all was taking place in the World War II era, and so the original origin story has a, an American pilot, Steve Trevor, somehow uh, crash lands on Paradise Island, which is what was originally called, now, that, now it's referred to as Themyscira, uh, but he, he lands on this island of the Amazons, and they nurse him back to health, and they learn about this horrible uh, world war that's going on, World War II. Um, of course, the movie uh, does an interesting thing, which is to bring it back to World War One, which is a sort of fascinating thing in and of itself, which we might get to talking about later. But then there is a contest to see which of the Amazons might be willing to bring him back to man's world, and all of the Amazons compete, and Diana, uh, the daughter of, of Hippolyta, competes as well uh, against her mother's wishes uh, while wearing a mask, basically, and she wins the competition and wins the right to do this. But in the process, it means that she's going to be cut off from her homeland, and so that's something that she has to live with. Uh, Wonder Woman has lots of powers especially in the early days that are assigned to her. Super strength that's really, uh, in the early days, the Golden Era Wonder Woman was as strong as Golden Era Superman. Um, you know, could lift thousands of pounds above her head, could jump incredibly long distances, had a kind of super speed, a kind of super wisdom. Marston was obsessed with the idea of um, mental abilities and so she had a certain kind of ESP she had uh, tel telepathic abilities uh, she could channel the energy into her in her body into electrical shocks uh, stuff like that uh, and she could speak almost any language something they also play on in the film eventually her powers continue to develop um, and she uh, was uh, given all sorts of bizarre powers over the years, including, I think, my favorite being the ability to speak to animals, because why not? <laughs> um, post the Crisis on Infinite Earths in the 1980s, um, in the comics, uh, she's given the ability to fly. Prior to that time, she tools around the world in an invisible jet. I don't know why it's an invisible jet, but it is. Um, but, of course... <laughs> Uh, I think the most enduring symbol of Wonder Woman in terms of her powers, and this isn't her direct power, but something she wields, is the Lasso of Truth, which is meant to come from the goddess Athena. And the Lasso of Truth has its origins back with Marston himself, who, among other distinctions, Marston was the inventor of the polygraph test, the lie detector. Uh, and so the idea of this lasso, that when you're in it, you have to tell the truth, uh, has some connection to Marston's uh, own life, weirdly enough. Now, uh, as I said, Marston kind of played fast and loose with the mythological elements. But by the time you get into the 1960s, 70s, and especially into the 80s, the mythological piece of Wonder Woman really starts to develop, becomes a big deal. Um, there's a lot of interaction with the gods, a lot of you know, stuff that's being brought in, especially by uh, George Perez and his run, yeah. which really, you know, shaped a lot of what we think of as Wonder Woman and shaped it for me as a kid. You know, Wonder Woman next to Green Lantern was always my favorite uh, character in, in comics and, and my favorite hero. And part of the reason for that was I always loved Greek mythology. I thought Greek mythology was the most amazing thing. And so here you have this figure who's a hero almost directly out of this mythological world. Wonder Woman has always been contradictions. She's always been marked by contradictions. She is a warrior who fights for peace. Uh, she is a feminist sex symbol. She is, you know, she is all of these things kind of rolled into one. And what, why I think that works for her is because it's never been, you know, they just throw these things together and she doesn't worry about it. She actually struggles with how do I make sense of these various things. And I think that makes her a really 
um, identifiable character, somebody you can identify with. But I would say uh, if there's any constant at the heart of Wonder Woman as a character, it's uh, these three interrelated things of love being the highest ideal, sincerity, and truth at all costs, that truth must be upheld, truth must be found and fought for, and that there's always this sincerity in her. It's something that I think um, was always there in the comics, but was really uh, emphasized by the Wonder Woman television show in the 70s by Linda Carter's uh, portrayal of, of her. You know, there's no guile in her. <laughs> she seeks to find uh, and protect and uphold whatever the truth is uh, at the center of any given situation, which is part of the reason why her cast of villains are often um, people who are wrapped up in lies. I mean, that becomes, you know, kind of the, the thing. Some, a character like Dr. Psycho, for instance, whose whole, uh, whole purpose is to convince people that, that they live in a different world than they do, basically. So, that is the, the very short Reader's Digest version of uh, 75 Years of Wonder Woman. Uh, Father Matt, tell us, what did you think of the movie, and how does it measure up with the depiction of Wonder Woman we know from comics? I have to say, I loved the movie. I, I just saw it last night. Uh, I had heard that it was great. Oh, everybody was talking it up, and it did not disappoint. I think they really got Wonder Woman right. She is a heroic character in, in, in the movie, which I, I, I'm so glad to see, uh, especially given DC's recent attempts at films. Uh, I, I don't know how you make uh, Superman dark and gritty. <laughs> it's sort of not true to the character, um, and uh, it really sort of doesn't work. I was afraid that they might try something similar with Wonder Woman. But no, instead we get the positive, moral, idealistic hero that we really need during these days of uh, post-truth. <laughs> um, Wonder Woman is, is a hero for our times. And, and they really capture that well. They capture the heroism and the moral integrity of, of, of Wonder Woman very vividly, but also the spirit of Marston's creations begin with. The figures of the Amazons and, and their purpose in the world and, and how uh, Wonder Woman is a part of that. The movie kind of begins with an uh, animated kind of overview of, of, of Greek, Greek mythology um, and especially its, its take on creation. And uh, for Christian viewers... Uh, and for listeners to this podcast, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of meat there and a lot of overlap with the Christian story, especially the way it's sort of slanted and presented in the film. We have the creation of the world by Zeus, by by the chief god in, in, in Greek mythology, and he creates human beings in his own image. This is something that Greek mythology and Christianity had in, in common and, and St. Paul even kind of acknowledges that in his famous speech uh, at the, at, on Mars Hill at the Areopagus in, in the book of Acts he says some of your writers even said it we are his offspring um, and so that's really brought out in, in, in the film that we are creation of God and, and how in, in this story, uh, mankind made good in the image of God was corrupted. And so the Amazons kind of exist to be like a moral light to this world, to man's world, which has been corrupted by war. But the action's just thrilling. Wonder Woman's costume is great. Gal Gadot, the woman who plays Wonder Woman is, is a knockout. <laughs> She's also funny and a great actress. This is just a phenomenal movie. I'm in the same boat as Father Matt. I loved it. I thought it was, it was a fantastic movie. I thought they did a very good job of capturing what I know of the Wonder Woman character. The thing with Wonder Woman is that she has been revealed recently in the Rebirth series. The story keeps changing. That's what it says. And there's so many different elements to her story. 
And I think they did a really good job of pooling together a lot of those diverse elements to create a compelling story. Certainly at this point in time, Wonder Woman has become the bright spot in the DC movie world. Um, she's become the bright hero in the midst of it all. As Father Matt was pointing to, it's a rich film. Um, certainly a lot of echoes of Christian themes bouncing around throughout the, the movie. You know, at the same time, not being a Christian movie, obviously, but definitely themes are bouncing around in there. So it's a lot of fun. I I've definitely suggest people go see it. I, my expectations were very high going in, but I was also very nervous um, because uh, up until now, I haven't really seen uh, anything in the DC Entertainment Extended Universe, excuse me, the DC Extended Universe. Um, the movie universe that has appealed to me. Um, I've seen stuff that's either been mediocre or uh, so dark and dreary and without even a hint of humor uh, that it's just kind of poisoned itself uh, to me. But this this was this was a very different film. Um, as Father Matt said, uh, I think Gal Gadot was perfect in this role. Uh, I, I don't know how they found her, but she's just this sort of perfect combination of things to be Wonder Woman, right? Here she's this Israeli beauty queen who also is a martial arts expert who trained, <laughs> trained fighters in the Israeli military. And, you know, it's like, holy crud, you know, like... Um, she is Wonder Woman. She yeah, is Wonder Woman, exactly. <laughs> and she has this, like, incredible poise to her character and way of uh, getting across her own sort of sense of sincerity. And it's funny. The movie is very funny. Um, I think Chris Pine, especially as, as, as Steve Trevor, is, uh, is a great sort of comic relief character. Patty Jenkins, the uh, director of this film, talked a little bit about the sincerity piece and how important that was to her that that be communicated in this film. She did an interview just a couple of days ago with the New York Times, and I, I just wanna read a little bit of what she said. She says, I'm tired of sincerity being something we have to be afraid of doing. It's been like that for 20 years, that the entertainment and art world has shied away from sincerity, real sincerity, because they feel they have to wink at the audience because that's what the kids like. We have to do the real stories now. The world is in crisis. I wanted to tell a story about a hero who believes in love, who is filled with love, who believes in change and the betterment of mankind. I believe in it. It's terrible when it makes so many artists afraid to be sincere and truthful and emotional and relegates them to the too cool for school department. Art is supposed to bring beauty to the world. I thought that wow. was, yeah, I know. I thought that was really amazing. And this is now, Patty Jenkins, uh, this is only her second film. Her first film back from 2004 was the film Monster. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, gosh, know. a much different kind of movie. Yeah, so she has this very interesting resume. And then she's done a bunch of TV and had a, had a child in between and all that kind of stuff. But her voice on this, along with the voice of the writer, is really very different than what we've seen out of the sort of Zack Snyder version of, of the DC Universe. Although da Zack Snyder was involved in this uh, project uh, to a certain sure. extent as well. He but wrote the story. He was one of the uh, three people who came up with the story, but he didn't actually write okay. the screenplay. There was a, I oh, forget okay. the name of the writer, but there's a different writer for the screenplay. The way uh, Patty Jenkins speaks about her own goals for the movie sort of dovetails a lot with Morrison's own description of like his goal in creating Wonder Woman as a character. You know, he wanted to make a strong female character that sort of embodied all the virtues that he associated with femininity that he thought was missing from the world. He said, we need a hero that is loving and tender and that shows uh, that shows, well, how did he put it? That shows that uh, submission is not weakness. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, I, I think that's kind of a, a beautiful idea. And it's, 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 a very, it's a very Christian idea, isn't it? I mean, 
Unfortunately, Morriston surrounds it with all this kind of creepy kink. But um, <laughs> I mean, which, which, it, which is just it, you read the old uh, Wonder Woman stories, and it's just how did he get away with this stuff? Yeah. But but the idea is that he was trying to communicate in his own very confused way is that submission is not weakness. That in fact there's a, there's a beauty and there's a power in this kind of submission it's 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 what it's what jesus taught his disciples to do to submit to one another in 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 love and he thought that it was the particular gift of of femininity to mankind to show men the power of love tenderness and submission which which uh, he created wonder woman to embody some of those characteristics I, i i think she really does we we have we have a much more uh tender and, and, and vulnerable hero in Wonder Woman that's no less powerful and, and strong because of it. One of the few things that I think the movie has a little bit of faltering with is that they make an attempt in a few places symbolically to make her into a Christ figure. Uh, I mean, there's one moment in particular where it's really over over the top obvious that's what they're trying to do. Like, she's up in the air in a crucified okay. pose, you know? So there, there's definitely some, like, pointing to that. And it's not that that's wrong. I mean, there, you know, she can absolutely be a sacrificial character and have some Christ figure to her if that's how they want to do it. But I've always felt that well, I, I don't want to say I've always felt this way, but ever since I've sort of thought about this through a theological lens, <laughs> uh, my, my thought has been that Wonder Woman's heroism comes less in the form of a Christ figure than it does in the form of a Mary figure. You know, Mary is the ultimate disciple, and she's the ultimate disciple precisely for the reasons that you're talking about, because she is willing to give herself over completely to what is there. There is a kind of super sincerity in Mary that can be overplayed sometimes. I mean, there's a, a sort of Marian piety that, that can be um, off-putting because it becomes saccharine sweet. But I think, uh, you know, if, if we're talking about the historic sort of Mary and piety. It's much more about here is somebody who gave themselves completely uh, to the following of, of Christ, to this larger reality of truth that she had been allowed to um, participate in and even to a certain extent fight for. And Mary herself becomes the emblem of the church. I see that at work in, in Wonder Woman. Um, as somebody who really, as I said before, without guile, um, follows the truth wherever it goes. And I think that comes through in this film as well, sure. to, to the point that she's naive in the beginning, you know, but that that never fully fades, that she is willing to give 100% of herself and that the truth of her character is in no way a cynical truth. Mm. You know, um, what, as long as we're talking about, uh, about that, uh, one of the elements of Wonder Woman's character that I, I always admired and that was left out of, of, of the movie in some respects was the fact that her powers are all a gift of grace from the gods. Mm-hmm. You know, she has the wisdom of Athena, she has the swiftness of Hermes, she has the strength of Hercules, um, they're sort of um, she she has those by by gift and she kind of depends on the gods for her power for a number of reasons that's sort of not emphasized in in the film as much but I always appreciated that about Wonder Woman's character uh, and and I remember you Father Jonathan pointed that out in a blog post for the Covenant blog for Living Church a couple years back and uh, I really appreciated that insight. Yes, yeah, thank you. That's, um, it's an interesting take you have there, Father Jonathan, on her character having reflections of Mary. Um, I certainly would not have, have thought much about that. Um, but it, it, one thing I think did come through for me in this whole film 
was even more than the one kind of um, Christ pose who would, you know, that she assumes there at the end of the film. I think they were really pushing a very strong Christ metaphor throughout the whole film. She has come in a very Christus Victor type of manner. That's a very strong theme that they're, they're trying to work. Although at the same time, there's a lot of elements of the early heresies, right? The, the naivete that she seems to exhibit reflects the idea that Jesus is just the divine man, but he, he kind of comes into the world not being fully aware of what the world is. Right. Um, those were the things that I was seeing at play in there. So, I mean, it's interesting your take on it from a Mary type of perspective. I, I think, no, I think you're right about the way that the movie tries to play this, but I, I'm sort of keeping in mind what I've seen historically in the character of Wonder Woman versus how she's portrayed in the film. And I think that, I think you're right that that is what they're trying to do with her. Uh -huh. But I think that in spite of themselves, they, they, they keep coming back to this, this other version of her because um, the way that, particularly the way that Gal Gadot plays her is so much, you know, there's a sort of, or you could even say, I mean, I kept saying Marion, and it doesn't have to be Marion, but you could think of somebody like St. Therese of Lisieux, who is this, you know, her whole thing is um, the little way, the simple sort of, you know, I am a child of God kind of. And it's a simplicity that I remember the first time I read St. Therese's autobiography, I thought, this is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this is terrible because, you know, because here I am, this product of the cynical world that we live in now. Uh, and my whole, you know, we're, we're all part of basically the same generation here, which has been raised on cynicism. Sarcasm is the highest form of humor. Uh, let's be suspect of everything. And so, you know, I think our first reaction when we, when we come up against something that is absolutely sincere and childlike in its in its sincerity is uh to want to tear it down to be like well there's you know well there must be some hidden you know hedonism or something behind it. <laughs> there must be some hidden whatever right and well, that's because we were raised in man's world that's you know? right because we were raised in man's we world have, you know we are oppressed by by uh the patriarchy that, that dominates man's world, this ethos of, of domination and, and cruelty and cynicism, and we need um, we need the, the the feminine spirit that Wonder Woman embodies. Um, you know, to, I, I mean, to, you're, you're uh, saying that a little bit. You're saying that a little bit tongue in cheek, and I and I get why. Um, because it, not entirely, not entirely, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is the way Marston presents it is absolutely over the top and and sort of ridiculous in in how over the top it is. But there is some truth to the fact that um, you know we have a sort of hard and cynical outlook that's kind of been played into us. And who can blame us, right? I mean, you know, we're we're living through an era of. I, uh, were you the one, Father Matt, who said, you know, we're living through this area of um, post-truth, post -truth, right? And, you know, we see scandals and things like that every day in the newspapers, um, you know, where it's like it doesn't, you know, everybody's lying to you. Well, if everybody's lying to you, then I'm just going to assume that everything is a lie. Um, and then here's this character who is who just takes it on face that... Uh, goodness is goodness and evil is evil and, and just sort of accepts what she is given. I mean, I think that is, you know, to me, that's the Annunciation. Yeah, there's definitely that. I mean, I think it's a, it's a helpful insight. It reminds me a lot of um, what Greg Rucka has done with the Wonder Woman Year One storyline, right? Where, where he tells her origin story, the new origin story. And, um, and she comes in as a very kind of innocent, naive person in that. Well, you know what? Do you know what they play with in this? Um, the the first Superman, which is sort of like DC movie, yeah, it's bad, you know. And there's a lot of if you watch Wonder Woman, there's a lot of homages to the first Superman movie. Patty um, Jenkins has said that she looked to that movie a lot in the making yeah, of this. Yeah. yeah. So 
even um, you know Diana Prince's look with the with the hat and the glasses and the mm-hmm. suit. It's sort mm-hmm. of it's sort of Christopher Reeves Clark Kent. But mem- remember in, in in Superman the first movie where Clark Kent is sort of this innocent in the city and he can't get through the uh, the the turning door. Yes. Remember that. Yeah. And, and they they play they 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 have an homage to that with Diane. Prince kind of trying to get through the spinning door, and then um, uh, the, the, when when Clark Kent uh, catches a bullet in the alleyway to save Lois Lane, they kind of reproduce that same scene where where Wonder Woman dressed as Diana Prince leaps in front of Steve Trevor and deflects the bullet with her with her bracelet, and an almost you know parallel kind of scene to that original uh superman and i think that's that's kind of why you know when superman came out it was sort of like who is this blue boy scout in like the 1970s or 80s or whatever modern you know metropolis where you know everybody's sort of cynical and and, and, he embodies this pure kind of spirit almost kind of a throwback to a more innocent time and Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, is the same way. She's sort of like a, a, a woman out of her element, you know, fish out of sure, water in sure. a very different kind of world. So her look kind of references to Clark Kent, but it's also it's perfect that she's back in World War One that era because we get to see Wonder Woman kind of look like a suffragette. <laughs> but what I also thought was was fascinating, and I I really don't know what what made them make this choice but of course one of the great you know there are a number of of villains in this film but one of them is uh general eric ludendorff who was an actual historical figure he really was a german general during world war one who did a whole bunch of horrible things and uh now uh you know they they change his story in various ways but i i just it's sort of curious to me why they decided uh, we'll bring an actual historical figure <laughs> yeah, in for her battle. Well, um, I, I, I could kind of see why World War One, because World War One is like the dawn of modernity and like mm-hmm. the beginning of modern warfare, like as we know it. I think the reason for the World War One setting is because this is the time of of women getting the right to vote. The big argument mm-hmm. being oh, taken up, right? Women's liberation, the the nascent stages of that. Um, so I think that's probably a large part of. The I mean, it makes well. sense on a number of levels to bring it back then. Mm-hmm. Um, Father Matt had brought up before um, the idea of grace, and I think that. Uh, that is such an amazing theme in this film, um, uh, and uh, particularly the idea of sin and grace becomes almost central to this film. They play Wonder Woman as this naive character towards the beginning, um, but part of her naivety is that she's looking at the world, she sees that the world is at war, and she assumes that the only reason this could possibly be so is because Ares, the god of war, has been influencing people, uh, human beings, to do bad stuff. That uh, this is where uh, the warring is coming from. And if she can just find Ares and destroy him, then people will be good people and there won't be any, any problems after that. And what she starts to discover slowly over the course of the film is that uh, while Ares is a, is a villain within the film, I mean, there is a sort of confrontation with Ares that comes, uh, nevertheless, what she discovers is that people, in fact, don't need to be talked into evil, that people actually have evil in their hearts. <laughs> And so she essentially, without naming it, discovers that human beings are sinful. And Ares himself, who is, I think, a perfect, perfect representation of the devil, of the Christian devil. I mean, he is far more the Christian devil than he is the Ares of Greek mythology. Oh, I agree. 
Yeah. And he and he basically says to her, he says, "Look, you think I've been making these people do all this stuff? No way. All I do is make a little suggestion here and there, and they're off and running. They can't wait to beat each other's brains out with the tools that I give them." There is one moment in particular, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I tried to remember the line as best I could because it was as soon as I heard it, I thought this is this is God in comics right here. Where Ares says to her, he's pointing out all of these the evil things that these people are doing, and he says to her, they don't deserve to live. And her response is, it's not about what they deserve, it's about what you believe, and I believe in love. Yeah. And I thought, there it is, there's the moment right there. She has recognized both sin and grace. All in this foul, one foul swoop. Because what Aries says is, to a certain extent, is true, right? We don't deserve to live. We are sinful creatures. We are um, destructive and, and so on and so forth. And yet, the beauty of grace is that God loves us. And that his love for us is not based on anything that uh, we have done to earn it. It is based on uh, just this beautiful characteristic of God, that he is himself love, that he effuses with love, and that that love can actually transform us and, and make it so that, you know, despite our, our sinfulness and brokenness, we can also be loving beings. We can rise above that which, uh, which we have been uh, cursed under. Um, so I just, I thought, wow, you know, um, without using either the word sin or the word grace, in a tiny soundbite, they've perfectly encapsulated it. Yeah, that's spot on. I was thinking the exact same thing when I was watching the film. I think the other thing that they did very well is toward the end, and I won't be able to quote it. I caught note of it, but couldn't remember all the words. They pointed to the complexity of human beings still in light of that. And there's often been a time in Christianity modern Christianity, where I think we can get very reductionistic and simplistic and think, well, if you just, you know, you, you kind of have Jesus in your life, then everything's going to be good. So get rid of Aries and all will be well, right? Um, but the complexity of human beings, even in light of the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ, is that we still remain, as Luther says, simul justus et vacator, at one and the same time, a sinner and a saint. Um, so there still is, you know, evil sin present in us. And at the same time, we are those beloved by God. And I thought they got that note at the end, um, perhaps in a non-Christian way, of course. Well, I mean, they get human nature so right in the movie, I think. I, I, so part of the dilemma is Wonder Woman, is it, it, her naivety is going to be confronted. And she comes face to face with just how wicked and corrupt man's world really is. Under the power of, of Ares, right? But uh, even the good people are polluted by it. Um, even, you know, Steve Trevor even says, you know, at one point, and I don't have the exact quote, but like, you no, know, it's part of me too. And Ares uh, wants her to, you know, uh, to despair about human nature at, at that point and to condemn them. They, they, they don't deserve, um, they don't deserve life. Uh, her mother even tells her, they don't deserve you, Diana. You know, man's world does not deserve you because they are awful. And you know what? It's not like they turn a blind eye to just how sinful and corrupt human nature is. At one point, uh, at the end, and I almost wanted to stand up and be like, yes, amen. <laughs> she says, basically, they are as bad as you say they are, Aries, but there's so much more. Meaning, everything that Aries has said to condemn mankind about their wickedness, about their selfishness, about their violence, is true. But that's not the last word about the human race. They were created in the image of God as well. They were created uh, for goodness. And so um, 
their, their, the wickedness uh, is not the last word about uh, about uh, the human race. They have this uh, divine potential and identity as well. That that's just such a triumphant moment where where she's able to really take seriously the wickedness of the world, but also hold on to hope for redemption and for a, a greater future for for humanity. So many more things that, that could be said. I'm sure we'll have more conversations about Wonder Woman in the future, especially as uh, more films come out, because given the success of this one, I, I would be willing to bet there will be more Wonder Woman films. But for now, we're going to move on to our final segment, This or That. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Huh? Uh, Father Kyle, let's start with you then. Um, l- the Lasso of Truth, or uh, I'm not sure how to say it, Molnar, the, the, the hammer, Thor's hammer. Oh, Mjolnir. Mjolnir, okay, whatever. Yeah. I would probably go with Mjolnir, uh, only because of the destructive power that it has, and <laughs> being a man who likes to bust things up, I'll <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Father Matt, uh, continuing with the uh, Wonder Woman theme here. Dr. Poison or Dr. Psycho? That's a, that's a hard one. I, I'll say Dr. Poison, and I, I like the Dr. Poison portrayal in the, in the film. She was, she was a, a, a compelling character. Fair enough. I hope they do Dr. Psycho in the movies eventually. Well, the He's villain spooky. that I'm, I'm really excited to see, I want them to do Cheetah. Yeah, oh, yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's one of the interesting things about the Wonder Woman TV show, which, of course, I loved from back in the day, but they never really did the kind of outlandish bad guys that Wonder Woman would face. They didn't do, you know, Cheetah or Giganta or any of those sort of characters. It was always like street gangs or, uh, you know, international spies or something like that, or the Germans in the first season. It seemed to be the theme of of late 70s shows. I mean, you look at Incredible Hulk or you look at the uh, Spider-Man show from the 70s and they never did any of the villains either. Mm -hmm. Captain America, you know, they just always made them street-level bad guys. Mm. Okay. Well, Father Kyle, uh, back to you. An invisible jet or a 57 Chevy? (laughs) The 57 Chevy has not made an appearance in a while now. It's been invisible. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> well, given that I prefer to drive rather than fly, I'll go with the 57 Chevy. You'd take that over an invisible jet? Ah, uh, yes. I don't it's, really care for flying. Oh, it's all about the image, you know? No one can see how awesome your invisible jet is. That's right. Good point, <laughs> Father Matt. Yes. All right. All right. Father Matt, uh, Thomas Jefferson or John Adams? Well, I, I really like that miniseries on HBO about John Adams. <laughs> and he emerged from that a, a very uh, likable character. Um, I'm going to go with John Adams. So your answer is Paul Giamatti? Is that what you're saying? Paul Giamatti. <laughs> okay. Just don't give him any Merlot. That's right. Father Kyle, Shaquille O'Neal or a stick of butter? I, I failed to see the connection between the two there. I um, never said there had to be one. Yes, I guess not. Former uh, NBA star Shaquille O'Neal or a stick of butter? I'm going to go with the stick of butter because butter makes everything taste better. Mm. Are you saying that Shaquille O'Neal does not make everything taste better? Yeah, I don't think he does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. but you As know, talented as he may be. And he did play for my favorite team, the Lakers, for a while. But Your favorite team is the Lakers? Yeah. Oh, we're going to have to have some conversations. Yes. The Lakers yeah. are an abomination. But anyway. <laughs> speaking of abominations, Father Matt, New Jersey or the dark side of the moon? Hey, whoa. New Jersey, an abomination. <laughs> I didn't say which one of those was the abomination. Okay. <laughs> That's hard to say um, because I'm both a Pink Floyd fan and a Bruce Springsteen fan. Mm. Um, but I've never been to the dark side of the moon. 
and I'd be interested in meeting the Inhumans. So, I'm going to have to say the dark side of the moon. I thought you were going to say I haven't been to the dark side of the moon, but I have been to Paramus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Father Kyle, Fleetwood Mac or the Eagles? And note, there is a right answer to this question. Well, for me, that's a tough call, because for me, both of those could be a right answer. Um, I will probably say in this circumstance, Fleetwood Mac, though. That is, that is the correct answer. You have chosen wisely. <laughs> there is a, in, the, in the church, uh, there's a chain, a little chain that holds the doors open um, when people are coming in and out on Sunday. And this past week, the chain, for some reason, we have no idea why, just suddenly fell apart as people were coming through. And without even thinking about it, I said, oh, I guess Stevie Nicks was wrong. <laughs> Father Matt, liturgical dance... Or Nickelback? Oh, wow. Nickelback, at least, um, is an, an affront to our Lord. <laughs> <laughs> the lesser of two evils. There you go. And especially when uh, the liturgical dance includes miming. Mm. Oh, goodness. Or giant paper mache puppets. Oh, my gosh. We'll have to we'll have to put a link up to the uh, puppets of doom, my favorite uh, liturgical dance example, the puppets of doom. You guys have seen that video, right? No. Oh, it's from some it's some some Catholic mass somewhere, years not that not that long ago. I mean, probably within the last ten years. But it's um, you know there are, there's this woman doing liturgical dance that's absolutely absurd looking, and then there are these like people in the background with big, giant, papier-mâché heads. And there's absolutely so no rhyme or reason for why they're there. They're just there. <laughs> Freaky. Whoa. They have, like, dreadlocks and stuff. Yeah, you've seen, you've seen this, yeah. I've seen them. All right, Father Kyle, uh, two great works of literature, The Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, or Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. Well, it has been a long time since I've read the Canterbury Tales, um, probably since high school. So my recollection of them is not as good. Uh, but I have recently read Green Eggs and Ham as a father. So I'm going to go with Green Eggs and Ham for the sheer fact that it's the one thing I remember in that choice selection. Mm. All right, Father Matt, last one to you. The most profound of all of these thus far, 29 or 354? <laughs> well 354 is uh or 29 I, you know i'm kind of an even kind of guy mm -hmm. so i'm gonna i'm gonna go with 324 yeah see that's why i'd pick 29 because i'm odd yeah yeah well, so. <laughs> okay well that's going to do it for this or that, and it's going to do it for uh, our last show of season three. Can you believe it? We've done, uh, this is the, the 41st show that we've done, and uh, the last show in season three. Uh, but we're real excited for, for season four. We're going to be back in the fall better than ever. Uh, we're working behind the scenes with the folks at the Living Church to do all kinds of really great things, uh, lots of, of new ideas, and I'm sure we'll have lots of of wonderful stuff to, to look at in comic books and comic book related culture, uh, movies, television, and so forth. Uh, so uh, we hope that you guys uh, out there who are listening, we thank you for listening. Uh, you're the reason why we were able to do this and why we continue to do it. And uh, we hope that you all have a wonderful summer. If you have not already done so, uh, please go and tell us what you think of Wonder Woman, what you think of uh, the Wonder Woman movie and so forth on the social media. We'd love to catch up with you there. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash godandcomics, or you can tweet at us on, on Twitter. Um, if you tweet at us on any other website, it probably won't work. So I recommend you go to Twitter. Uh, we are at God and Comics. We'd love to see you there. You can find out about the rad stuff that we talked about today, some of the stuff that we, we mentioned, uh, by going to our show page at godandcomics.com. And while you're there, you can give the show another listen. 
You can also subscribe to our program through your favorite podcast provider or RSS feed, uh, including iTunes. And if you are listening to us through iTunes, please, please, please go and rate the show. Give us a review. We would love to have it. It helps other people find the program. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right this moment, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who has the power to talk to animals, which is why your dog watches you while you're in the shower. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Mitchkin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Ben Strober. And we'll see ya.